0: Welcome to Michigan Medicine Newsbreak, your destination for news and stories about the future of healthcare. We've expanded the Newsbreak to include Twitter Space conversations with Michigan Medicine experts. Welcome to Michigan Medicine's first ever Twitter Spaces chat. I am Kelly Malcolm. I am a research communicator here at Michigan Medicine, and thank you so much for joining us. But today we are here to discuss COVID, specifically recovering from COVID, preventing COVID and overall lung health. Uh, COVID-19 has affected all of us in some way, and unfortunately doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. Um, But today we're here with several experts who are going to touch on some of these issues and hopefully provide some insight. Um, Specifically, we have Dr. Maylon Han, who is the chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine here at University of Michigan Health. We have Dr. Hallie Prescott. Who is also of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, and we have Dr. Thomas Valley, who is also of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. Um, Dr. Han, are you here?
1: Can you say hello? Hello, Kelly. Thank you for getting us uh, started off. I'm really excited to to try out this new format. As you, this is, uh, a new thing for us. Um, And I'm excited to be uh, joined by two of our uh, experts in pulmonary and and critical care who who really have done quite a bit of uh, work and research, uh, both in uh, severe lung injury as well uh, as COVID. Um, Dr. Prescott and, and Dr. Valley, would you like to quickly introduce yourselves? Hi, this
2: is Hallie Prescott. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician at uh,
1: University of Michigan,
2: um, and also um, a researcher focused on recovery from sepsis and also COVID-19. Thanks for hosting us today.
3: Hi, and I'm Tom Valley. Thanks for having us today. Um, I am an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, also in pulmonary critical care. And um, in addition to taking care of patients um, after they leave the intensive care unit, um, I uh, my research focuses on trying to understand how we deliver care, both in the ICU and afterwards.
1: So, one of the things that is uh, we've all been struggling with, and when I say we, I mean us as a division, as just, uh, but also us as a community and a society, is just grappling with COVID nineteen from many, many levels. We, as care providers, particularly for pulmonary disease, I think have an extremely unique perspective, having seen it firsthand. And so what we wanted to try to do with this session today was to talk a little bit about what we're seeing in the hospital, particularly uh, during the surge, but also a little bit about what we're seeing now for patients that have recovered from COVID-19 and what people can be doing if, for instance, they are uh, recovering or recovered or want to just to try to uh, protect themselves uh, against future lung injury, so I'm going to go ahead and, and jump right into it. We have a few questions. Uh, the first one, and I'm going to direct this one at you, Doctor Valley. When we think about a patient being in the ICU, and many of our listeners probably have never even set foot in an ICU, what what does you know from a patient perspective, from a physician perspective? What does a severe COVID look like and, and what, does re, what is the recovery pathway from severe like?
3: Absolutely. Such a, such an important question. And, you know, maybe I'll start by just describing kind of what's, what is severe COVID. You know, severe COVID, we tend to define by those individuals who have to be hospitalized. So you don't even have to be in the intensive care unit to have, quote, unquote, severe COVID. Um and while there, you know, we generally classify different forms of COVID, whether mild, moderate, or severe, that severe group we say is someone who had to go to the hospital. And oftentimes um, most of those individuals are requiring oxygen when they're in the hospital. Um, when we talk about what happens in the intensive care unit, what really separates the intensive care unit from other parts of the hospital is the um, you know, if you want to call it intensive or aggressive care that we're able to provide that keeps people alive, whether it's high levels of oxygen, whether it's putting people on breathing machines, uh, whether it's putting them on other forms of life support to keep them alive, Um, all with the hopes that their body will eventually recover um, from the COVID that they're suffering from. Once those individuals leave the ICU, um, uh, they are uh, working to recover from their COVID. And, um, and what, we, what we know is what we've started to learn over the past two years now, um, and that is that uh, individuals who are recovering from COVID go through a lot. Um, uh, you know, we're learning more and more about what these individuals are, are recovering from. But, you know, we can say from these large studies that have looked at people who've been hospitalized for COVID and then leave the hospital, there are really kind of large categories of symptoms that individuals who are recovering from COVID suffer from. You know, I'd say the most common is shortness of breath. You know, by some estimates, um, somewhere between um, 50 to uh, 75% of, of patients who are recovering from severe COVID have symptoms of shortness of breath or fatigue. You know, those are really the two most common symptoms that we're seeing in individuals recovering from COVID. Then there's a long list of other symptoms that people are reporting after they're recovering from COVID, whether it's loss of taste, loss of smell, cough, um, as well as a lot of other symptoms and and problems that people suffer from. You know, we're still trying to grapple exactly why that is happening, Um, and, and, you know, it can be difficult to, to treat some of these things because not every person who comes to us that we take care of. Has objective findings. You know, so by some estimates, somewhere between you know 10 to 20 percent of people with severe COVID have um, changes to their lungs, scarring or, or or changes that we see on a CT scan. So a lot of the people who are suffering from shortness of breath don't actually have anything that we can exactly put our finger on that says this is the reason why you have shortness of breath, which can make it very difficult both for the patient and for the Uh, clinicians taking care of them to try to figure out what to do. You know, if we don't know exactly why they're feeling this way, it can be difficult to figure out what's going on and how to fix it. So those are some of the main things that we're seeing. A lot of folks with shortness of breath, a lot of folks with fatigue, um, and then other symptoms as well that are um, tough to exactly pinpoint why they happen.
1: Thanks so much for that. Um, those great insights, Dr. Valley. I You know, one of the the things I keep thinking about and that maybe many people don't realize is that severe COVID or ARDS uh, can be caused by a lot of things, not just COVID. And so this is something that we've actually been as critical care physicians dealing with for a very long time. And despite the fact that we've all been working on this uh, we didn't actually have a lot of great, really specific treatments even before the pandemic, uh, and so you know, for me, just kind of looking at this at the more global lens, I I still you know we needed more research in this before, and we we need more even now. But one of the other things that a lot of critical uh, care physicians have been thinking about is how does COVID, you know, differ from other severe lung diseases, other forms of, and how does COVID recovery differ perhaps from other recoveries from other causes of ARDS? And I was going to ask Dr. Prescott to give us her thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, great. Um, Thanks, Milan. It's, of course, you know, a a great question and, of course, resonates with me. Um, So I've been you know, studying recovery from sepsis for the past 10 years or so. So I'll give kind of a little bit of just historical background. I think as early or as recently as about maybe 20 years ago, there was just this kind of widespread assumption that, you know, as long as patients survived their hospitalization, they would go on to recover well and, uh, you know, be as they were before they were hospitalized. And I think, you know, that that belief, um, you know, reflects our optimism, right, that our patients will go on to recover and do well after they leave the intensive care unit where we're taking care of them. And also maybe reflects a little bit of the fragmentation of the healthcare system that as intensive care doctors, we may not see our patients back. So we kind of fill in the blanks. Um, but about 20 years ago, the first cohort were done that followed patients, you know, after after critical illness, after they were in the intensive care unit with a severe pneumonia or on the ventilator or with acute respiratory distress syndrome. And they said, how are they doing at three months, six, one year after after their illness? And Consistently, the studies have shown that many people struggle, right? So we see that there's increased rates of cognitive impairment, sort of like an dementia. Um, We see difficulty with physical function. So people have difficulty doing things like walking independently or transferring from a bed to a chair and back. We see that about, you know, something around half of patients with sepsis after the intensive care unit who are working beforehand are still not back to their normal working um, about six months later. and so when, when COVID happened, um, you know, a lot of us who'd been researching this for the past decade said, oh, my goodness, this is kind of what we've been seeing before. Um, but before it was kind of like in the background, right? Um, but all of a sudden, kind of all around the world, so many people, all sick, all with the exact same Thing all at once, I think a lot of these concerns really got a lot more attention. Um, but in terms of how does you know, things look after COVID versus after sepsis or other severe pneumonias, I think that in general, there's more similarities than differences. Um, but the question's always a little bit hard to answer just because recovery can look so different just from one patient to another, right? Um, so, so common challenges are Um, cloudy thinking, right? Or um, fatigue and shortness of breath or um, anxiety or depression. And you know those are all common symptoms but fortunately um most patients don't have all of those things right what it looks like for any one patient is different so all of those things that we saw commonly after pneumonia and sepsis you know in studies over the past 10 15 years we're now seeing as well the same challenges in patients recovering from covid so overall more similarities um than differences but there's maybe a few things right that are kind of more particular for covid things like the loss of taste and loss of smell. Those things are more prominent in COVID. Um, Headaches, you know, so maybe a few symptoms. But overall, I think what we're learning now um, is very similar to what we've been seeing. Uh, There's now a lot more attention to this problem. Like Melon mentioned, we did not have good solutions before. So hopefully this serves as a sort of a catalyst or a motivation to um, accelerate the development of interventions to help promote recovery um, and to kind of implement those types of interventions in different healthcare uh, settings.
1: Thank you for those uh, insights, Dr. Prescott. I think, as you mentioned, COVID is making, it's bringing to the forefront problems that we as uh, pulmonary and critical care physicians were aware of for a long time, but just it never, there were always patients, but it just didn't get as much probably attention as it deserved. And now the number of patients that are suffering are so much larger that I think this is clearly an area that's screaming for more research, more treatments. One of the things that I think a lot of us have been pondering is why do some patients get really, really sick from COVID 19 and some have very mild or asymptomatic infections? And I think. Some To me, some of the most fascinating uh, research that's come out of the pandemic relates to understanding this concept of what I'm going to call pre-existing lung injury and your risk for both contracting SARS-CoV-2 and then the severity of illness. So there was an interesting study that was actually done in Oregon looking at the impact of, of wildfires in the American West. And they looked at a brief, uh, some researchers from Harvard looked at this brief uh, time for exposure and found that during this, this high pollution time from the particulate matter in the air from the wildfires, there were roughly 20,000 more cases of COVID and almost 1,000 more deaths. And most of those people probably, you know, short of there having been a pandemic, that we would never have known that you could have that kind of lung injury just from breathing in air pollution. Uh, There was another study that was actually spearheaded here at the University of Michigan by some of our colleagues in pathology. And when they looked at patients, at a subset of patients with long-haul COVID, they actually were surprised that when they looked at CAT scans that happened to have been done on those patients before they developed COVID-19, there was actually pre-existing lung injury. There was pre-existing inflammation. And we do a really bad job in this country at diagnosing lung disease in general. Uh, there, you know, for instance, COPD, one of our most chronic lung diseases, only about half of the roughly 30 million individuals in the United States who have it are diagnosed. And based on the data that 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 I'm seeing come out, I firmly believe that either pre undiagnosed, full blown pre existing lung disease, or some more subtle form of lung injury that we're just not good about picking up. We don't screen very well for the lung disease in this country, is contributing to injury from from COVID nineteen. A real wake up call that we have to start focusing uh, more clearly as as both you know uh, people in the community, but also as physicians on uh, trying to protect lung health, understand lung health, and and try to decrease inflammation because it, it's clear that some of this pre-existing lung injury is increasing risk for, um, for severe disease. So one of the other things that we we're also seeing here at the University of Michigan for sure is long, what we're calling long haul COVID. And, and Dr. Prescott, you sort of alluded to that as well. We, I think the last estimates I saw suggest we have roughly 11 million Americans with long haul COVID. It's it's huge, um, and and we're we're kind of as a healthcare system struggling to understand how to better treat it, how to diagnose it. We know that there's so many different forms uh, that it can take, and and one of the other things that I think is really concerning is that we know that not all patients have been similarly impacted. And so I was wondering, Dr. Valley, if you could comment uh, on on what we're learning about long haul COVID. And, and do you think that there are certain communities or certain subsegments of the population that are more vulnerable?
3: Yeah, I, you know, I think that's that's an area that um, we need to be increasingly cognizant of, especially in an, uh, a, an area of science, an area of medicine, an area of research where, where we don't know much and we're learning every day. And so it's difficult for, for medical practitioners to try to figure out exactly why um, they're their patient is suffering from symptoms like shortness of breath and fatigue and cloudy thinking. And so um, it can very much depend on who you as a patient is seeing on whether you get, the, um, get someone who uh, recognizes the problems that you're facing. We might not be able to solve all the problems but we can at least recognize that you are going through what you're going through, that these are common manifestations of, of surviving COVID. And so sometimes people go and see uh, a practitioner and, and come away feeling um, uh, like their symptoms weren't recognized, that they weren't valued. And part of that is because it's tough as a practitioner to, um, to try to, to try to think through what's happening when, when we have, trouble finding objective abnormalities. But it doesn't change the fact that um, it's quite clear that, that survivors of COVID um, are, are suffering and going through a lot even in the face of not having those clear abnormalities that we typically look for, whether on chest X-ray or CT scan or on lab values. And when we think through who receives care where, I think there's a tendency um, uh, of thinking about whether whether patients who survive COVID should receive their care um, in a specialized place that specializes in COVID, in surviving COVID. And, um, you know, there there aren't that many places like that around the country. Um, And as we build our knowledge base and as we build um, kind of an expertise for individuals who are surviving COVID, I think it's um, important to consider um, who the people are that are being seen in those places, right? How, how are we selecting the patients that we care for? Um, how are we making sure that we um, are not uh, creating inequities in our care in terms of who survives COVID and how we treat their symptoms? So I think it's really important that as we move forward, um, we really think through not only how we're treating um, survivors of COVID, but um, making sure that we're, we're providing care to all those who need it.
1: Yeah, those are such important uh, thoughts, Tom. I, you know, here we live here in Michigan and we know, for instance, that while um, uh, Detroit only saw a fraction, for instance, of our COVID cases, they saw a huge, relatively huge proportion of the deaths. And, uh, and we know that um, Detroit, for instance, has a large uh, African American community. And so there have been huge concerns. Uh, about uh, access to care and access to good treatment and whether, for instance, pre-existing care, just, you know, general care that we get for for all sorts of things like diabetes and heart disease, et cetera, may have impacted uh, how people have fared from COVID. And there continue to be concerns about um, patients, for instance, and having access to some of these specialized clinics that you mentioned Uh, that are having expertise in caring for patients with COVID or even getting patients appropriate, who's getting follow up even, uh, after they're being discharged. This is, I think, definitely something that I, I know you and, and Dr. Prescott are actively, uh, looking at. I wanted to turn our attention for a moment also to, you know, what are we actually seeing now in clinic? We've, we've, we've been in the middle of this pandemic for a little over two years now. And so we're, we're all seeing all sorts of types of patients and we're seeing them right after they, they, you know, contract COVID. But then we've also had some time to follow up some of these patients over longer periods. And um, I was wondering, Dr. Prescott, if you could just a- address a little bit about the kind of variety of things that you're seeing and maybe also to give people some advice just about, you know, if they are having persistent symptoms, what should they talk to their doctors about what can potentially be done?
2: Yeah, great question. So I'll share a little bit about my experience. I do um, outpatient pulmonary clinic. Um, And so the most common patients that I've seen are patients who have either new shortness of breath after COVID or who have had worsening shortness of breath and exercise limitation. Um, And some of these things have been sort of discussed a little bit, you know, earlier, but I, you know, typically will do an evaluation of lung function, so looking at breathing tests and looking at, you know, chest X-ray or CAT scan, and I get a handful of patients where I can see that there's worsening of underlying lung disease, but that's kind of the minority. Most of the patients, their their lung function um, is uh, similar to, you know, to what it was prior to being hospitalized for COVID, but nonetheless, their symptoms are much worse more shortness of breath, able to walk shorter distances before having to stop and rest, you know, not able to, you know, carry in the groceries or walk up the stairs. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of this has to do with just kind of like the global uh, effect of being uh, sick. And I think that the most one of the most common things I'll do in clinic is counsel people about, you know, sort of what activity is safe to do. Um, I, I had a patient once who came and told me that, well, when he came home from the hospital, he was feeling short of breath um when he would you know sort of walk around in his house and so he assumed that that must mean that it was unsafe for him to walk around and so he told me he'd sitting in his chair waiting to get better for a couple of weeks now but nothing was getting better. Um it reminded me how important it was to counsel patients about um, the need to gradually increase activity. And there was actually, you know, studies, gosh, randomized clinical trials 20 years ago now where patients after the, you know, ICU after pneumonia after sepsis were half of them assigned to doing a structured exercise program, you know, things like walking and just trying to each day do a little bit more, recognizing that you might only be able to do a few minutes, but the next day do a little bit more, you know, or do a few minutes and stop and rest, but then do it again in the afternoon. And patients who are on these structured exercise programs were able to do more quickly. Um, So that's one of the things I spend a lot of time counseling patients on is that it, it's fairly like, normal or common that people are achy, that they're, you know, sort of short of breath. Um, but it's important to continue to try to gradually increase what you're doing day by day. And it can be frustrating and challenging because a lot of times progress does not occur day by day, right? Um, it's hard to build back sort of endurance. And so I'll always often tell my patients to keep a diary, write down what they did, you know, how far they were able to walk. And it can be really motivating, I think, to see progress that occurs week to week or month to month, um, to see that, you know, that, that, the, that, the, that the work that people are putting into recovery is paying off, uh, even if that's hard to see, you know, one day to the next. So that's what that's the things that I'm seeing, um, you know, most commonly in my clinic right now.
1: Those are such great uh, tips for uh, listeners, Dr. Prescott, just in terms of thinking about, uh, you know, the problem is, I think, with activity, it's use it or lose it. And so when you are inactive after being sick, it's, it's important to remember that part of it is just sort of not necessarily your lungs. It might sort of be the rest of you that needs to kind of get slowly back into shape, and it can all impact uh, how you feel. Dr. Valley, do you want to comment at all on what you're seeing in post-COVID clinic and the and the types of things you're encouraging patients to talk to their doctors about?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I, I think what I've found interesting is, um, particularly in the more recent waves of COVID, is that um, we're seeing more individuals who are really sick. Um, but they're sick in different ways than the patients that we took care of in the first waves. You know, the first waves, a lot of people were on ventilators, um, uh, whereas on this kind of more recent, these more recent waves, we're seeing lots of people who were um, on high levels of oxygen for long periods of time, but didn't necessarily need ventilators. Um, And as a result, it just seems like uh, it's it's tough to parse out how much of this is related to the patients who had COVID early versus how we treated those patients with COVID early, you know, putting them on ventilators early versus kind of tolerating maybe some marginal auction levels for longer periods of time, um, uh, versus kind of the sequela of that wrapped up, you know, the people who were older and sicker who got COVID early, and then we treated them um, uh, in certain ways versus how we're, what we're seeing now, Whether it's less severe COVID or whether it's just our tolerance and ability to care for this group of patients, you know, I'm seeing a lot more folks who are just on high levels of oxygen for long periods of time, and that's why they're in the ICU. And um, and as a result, um, you know, I'm 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 seeing more folks who have kind of single organ failure, right? They they had lung problems, and that's why they were in the ICU and they were on uh, auction for a real long time, as opposed to what we typically think of in a post-ICU clinic, which is, um, you know, oftentimes when people go to the in, in, an intensive care unit, they have, they might have one problem that they go in for, but then they have a lot of other problems come up. You know, they might come in with pneumonia, and then they get kidney failure, and then they um, have, uh, you know, weakness and all these other things that pop up as a result of the first problem that comes up. And so I found it interesting that uh, a lot of the patients that I've cared for more recently in our post ICU clinic at the VA um, have been uh, really that kind of isolated lung problem, high levels of oxygen for long periods of time, and have generally seemed, I'd say, uh, less sick than some of the other patients that we more consistently think of as kind of post ICU patients.
1: Yeah, it's it's thank you so much for that, Dr. Valley. It's really. Uh, interesting what a, at least in my own clinic what a huge spectrum i'm I'm seeing I have some patients for instance who were previously healthy they you see some pneumonia on the CT scan and then they get better quite quickly the the abnormalities you know take a month or two to resolve, but they're you know back to where they were and then I have other patients who uh, are o- almost a year and a half out now and are still struggling maybe. Uh, you know, we know rehospitalizations after COVID is a major issue. I can think of one patient in particular I have that struggled with blood clots and a second admission, then uh, fluid around the lungs. And now I'm seeing something completely unexpected, which is that this particular patient had some kind of mild asthma before they contracted COVID. And now the airway disease is much, much worse. Uh, than it was uh, before, which I think is perhaps a little bit less common pattern than what we've seen uh, with with other types of scarring abnormalities for severe COVID. So this was sort of an unexpected finding. I think we've got probably quite a bit to learn. I think for me as a clinician uh, and a researcher, one of the things that's really been st- striking to me is just that I, I hope that one of the, the that that people are hearing is that our, are uh, thing and do a lot of work for us, they were probably a little bit more fragile uh, than, than we realized. And it, I think it took our respiratory pandemic to, to probably realize, uh, you know, that, uh, that the lungs, uh, uh, you know, when, when they suffer severe injuries, sometimes they don't really have a good way to recover. Um, and we certainly need more, more treatments. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think a lot of our patients are going to get somewhat better. I think they, that they are, and uh, and we're certainly working towards that. But we need a lot more research to try to understand how to try to keep that inflammation less when people get really sick and how to try to help lungs recover and uh, and and get back to normal as much as possible. I'm just curious as we get towards the close here, Uh, you know, I, I always pushing for spirometry. That's our number one test. If, if there are patients out there who've been told that they had that, you know, oh, you just, you know, you, you know, they're either getting blown off or, or they're wondering about whether they have lung disease. My usual number one advice is ask your doctor for spirometry, which is our most simple lung function test and whether you can have that done. Uh, that's one good, great place to start with trying to understand your lungs and whether there's an issue. But, you know, to be honest, regardless of those results, if you're having, you're out there and you're recovered from COVID and you're still short of breath, ask to get seen by by a pulmonologist or, or a center uh, like the University of Michigan that has expertise in taking care of patients after COVID. I'm just going to ask both Dr. Prescott and then Dr. Valley for their final thoughts, and then toss it back to Kelly for close. So, Dr. Prescott, any final advice for any listeners out there?
2: Thank you. Yeah, no, I completely agree with the advice you just gave. I mean, I think that um, long COVID um, has just brought such attention to this issue. Um, I think that it's... um, for a long time, I think there was patients after sepsis and pneumonia that I think felt very um, isolated. Um, and there's just been, I think, a huge sort of patient-driven attention to these issues that we're seeing after COVID. Um, and I think that that's one of the most powerful things that can happen that will then sort of drive research and, and drive solutions going forward. So I just want to thank all the patients that have kind of raised awareness and, and the profile of the, of the issues that patients are experiencing after COVID.
1: Thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Prescott. Dr. Valley, any any final thoughts or for our listeners?
3: Yeah, I I also want to echo um, Melon, what you what you mentioned and Hallie what you said. You know, if you're not feeling well and, um, and then it's important to, to get evaluated and see what could be going on. We might not always be able to fix the problem, but what we can do is recognize that you're going through some lot of patients with COVID are going through, um, and work towards trying to get you feeling better. Um, and I think that's incredibly po- important to um, to be weighted, to make sure uh, that we kind of rule out important, but also potentially life-saving things, um, and uh, and then try to figure out, you know, what. can we get better and how much of this is related to the things that others are suffering from or how much of these things are unique to an individual survivor.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Valley and Dr. Prescott for for joining me for this. You know, one of our goals at Michigan Medicine and in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care, we want to provide information that's of value to the community. I firmly believe that knowledge is power and the more that you know about your own health, the better advocate you can be for yourself and, and for your loved ones. So, thanks to everyone for joining me, and I'm, I'll toss this up. Thank you, Dr.
0: Hahn, Dr. Prescott, and Dr. Valley, for this extremely informative discussion about COVID. Um, and thanks to all of our listeners for joining us on our very first Michigan Medicine Twitter space chat. For anyone who missed the start of our discussion, you can replay a recording of a space up to 30 days after the original broadcast um, and be on the lookout for future spaces on our Twitter page. Take care and stay safe out there. Thanks.